as we now, as we look to our Lord together in prayer. So, Father, we're asking that in a very unique, distinctive, powerful way, you meet us our point of need. Praying that your word has grip hearts of those that were in first service. That it is your word now that is central and preeminent as we are both in this service and via live stream now consider what it is that you would say to us this morning. So these moments are significant and important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a pandemic that was sweeping across Europe that seemed to create a longing, a hunger, a thirst for what matters most in life. It was the Black Death, as they would call it, or the Black Plague, and it made its way across England and Europe, wiping out perhaps up to about a third of the population. But simultaneously, what was occurring during those days is something that was known as the 100 Years' War, the battle between England and France, which sapped the energy and the resources of those nations, depleted financially, and but hungry spiritually. Wage controls locked the poor into marginal existence. There was the Peasants' Revolt, 1381, Bottom line, it was a time of social unrest. Pandemics, social unrest, the 1300s. As you explore history, what stands out is that as God disrupts a culture, simultaneously God distinguishes his gospel. As God disrupts a culture, simultaneously, God distinguishes the gospel. Because in the midst of that, God raised up a professor, pastor by the name of John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe was a professor at Oxford. And he was involved in translating all the scriptures into English, working from a handwritten Latin translation about that was over a thousand years old. But you see, the religious authorities banished him from his post at Oxford. But in the midst of it all, some classic words were uttered by Wycliffe, Professor Wycliffe. God's words will give men new life more than the other words that are for pleasure. Well, Wycliffe was condemned by the church died of a stroke New Year's Eve, 1384. His memory and his ministry continued on. It was so powerful, so intense, so strong. It was, interestingly enough, condemned again 30 years later at the Council of Constance. And believe it or not, get this, orders were given for his writings to be destroyed, his bones exhumed and burned, 
and the ashes to be thrown into the nearby river. Somehow, I guess, the church authorities thought by burning his bones, they might erase his memory. But you see, what's more important than a memory is a ministry. Memories can be very temporal, but the ministry of Jesus Christ is eternal because of the resurrected one. So what God does is that as he disrupts the culture throughout history, simultaneously God distinguishes the gospel through all of history. And I believe that's what is happening today. I want this church to be cutting edge, technologically, strategically, relationally, finding creative ways to communicate timeless truths so that we are able to offer what is timely in a culture that is time-bound, you see. What I want to do with you this morning, pondering this whole matter of God disrupting and simultaneously God distinguishing, is to draw out three aspects of the way in which how the gospel works in times of disruption. And the first comes out of verses 42 and 43. That whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ disrupts life and gut feel, it's disrupting life. Note first of all with me the initial response that it produces. You see it in 42 and 43. Now, he's been opening the word. He's been in the synagogue. He's a rabbi, equivalent of two doctors. He's a brilliant man, this Paul, once the persecutor of Jewish Christians, now the proclaimer of Christ to all Jews and Gentiles. And so they're heading out of the synagogue. As they're heading out, we are told here the people begged. You see it there in 42? Begged that these things be told them the next Sabbath. The word begged carries with it a sense from the original in the Greek of a sense of urgency. It combines intensity with urgency. It's as if they have come on to something that matters most. Now, you and I are being given a tremendous opportunity in a disrupted culture to offer a distinguishing gospel. People are going to begin to wonder, why is the status quo being disrupted to the degree that it is? And where can I find something that lasts? Where can I find a sense of stability? Where can I find a sense of security? Draw them to Jesus. As the culture is disrupted, the gospel is distinguished. And so now, the Apostle Paul senses there is this sense of urgency, intensity. They are literally begging for more. We need that in America. We need that globally. We need to deal with things that matter most. And so now what we see here is that he's going to be engaged with them the next Sabbath, but it's as if they can't even wait. He's pondering this. He's reflecting upon this. He's thinking about this. What do you say as you offer the timeless in a way that's timely? Well, in verse 43, 
You and I are told here that after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews, and mark this, devout converts to Judaism followed Paul. That means Gentiles. Now, I know the principle. You know the principle. It's found in Romans chapter 1 to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But bear in mind that Paul had a strategy when he went into the synagogue. Generally speaking, you would have predominant number of Jews, but you would always have a certain percentage of Gentiles. It's the way it was. You can see it all throughout the book of Acts. And so allow for that principle to be operative and watch and develop parallels between the way Paul ministered in synagogues and the way in which Jesus ministered in the synagogue and how synagogues would be disrupted as this plan of salvation was being presented. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas. They are the messengers. But what's interesting is that the emphasis is upon not the messengers, but the message. And my concern, day in, day out, when the word of God is being taught, is that the focus is not on the messenger, the focus is upon the message, you see. Messengers come and messengers go, but God's word remains forever. And so they break up. Jews, the vow converts to Judaism, are following Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, notice now, and you're going to connect 42 with 43, because while in verse 42, those that were listening were begging for more, Notice the intensity of it all in verse 43. Paul and Barnabas, on the other hand, urged them. Connect the beg with the urge. And they urged them to do what? To continue in the grace of God. If you love your tulip, there's the perseverance of the saints for you right there. And so now what we see is that uh, in the basis for internal security is eternal security. And in a culture such as ours, where the culture is being disrupted, there's an opportunity for the gospel to be distinguished. And when people are lacking a sense of internal security, you have the opportunity to talk about eternal security. And you bring the timeless to people in a way that's timely. He urged them to continue where? In the grace of God. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's getting what we simply, truly do not deserve. Highlander came into this world physically alive but spiritually dead. Not dormant. Dead. But love broke through. And when he put his faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because the regenerational work of the Holy Spirit, the result is physically alive, spiritually alive. If we're only born once, we die twice. If we're born twice, we die once. And so now, this matter of grace is God's unmerited favor where we receive what we truly do not deserve. You go offense. You might know the name Harvey Pennock, and he wrote a book 
one of the great books in the history of God. An excerpt from the writer. For a 90-year-old golf pro, Harvey Penick, success came a little late. His first golf book, Harvey Penick's Little Red Book, had sold more than a million copies, which his publisher believed made it one of the biggest things in the history of sports books. His second book, And If You Play Golf, You're My Friend, already sold nearly three-quarters of a million. But anyone who imagines that Pennock wrote the books to make money doesn't know the man. The writer says, In the 1920s, Pennock bought a red spiral notebook and began jotting down observations about golf. And he never showed the book to anyone except his son until 1991, when he shared it with a local writer and asked if he thought it was worth publishing. The man read it, told him yes. They left with Pennock's wife the next evening that Simon and Schuster had agreed, get this, to an advance of $90,000. Well, when the writer saw Pennock later, the elderly man was troubled. And then finally, Pennock came clean. He said, with all my medical bills, there's no way I can advance Simon & Schuster that much money. Well, the writer had to explain that Pennock would be the one to receive the 90000 And I thought about that. People so often have Pennock's reaction to the tremendous gift of salvation, God's grace offered in Jesus Christ. We ask, well, what must I do? The Bible says, it is what Christ has done. The issue is not do. No. The issue is done. That's grace. You see, in that synagogue, these were extraordinarily religious people that were caught up in the dues. And what the Apostle Paul has done, brilliant rabbi, once persecutor, now proclaimer, is that he appears on the scene and he says, put an N-E to your D-O. It's not what you do, it is what Christ has done. It is not your works, it is Christ's finished work. And nothing more can be added to. You, see. you can imagine then, you can drop. People are allowing for this to be absorbed into their, their thought processes. Because you see, when God disrupts a culture, simultaneously God distinguishes the gospel. So look around, and when people are lacking a sense of internal security, here's your opportunity. The door swings open to talk about eternal security because the basis for true internal security is eternal security and that is why now he's talking about the perseverance of the saints when he describes it this way urging them to continue in the grace of God now once you've grabbed hold of verses of verses 42 and 43 and the initial response 
that it produces. Then you're ready for the second aspect here and for those online. The scriptural promise that it presents. The scriptural promise it presents. The gospel of Jesus Christ, yep, it's disrupting life. But simultaneously, God is distinguishing the gospel in the midst of the disruption. Notice now the scriptural promise that it presents. You're up to verse you're up to see in verse 44 where now it's the next Sabbath and they just can't wait. They're going to bring a friend. They're asking, now who in my extended circle, family, friends, loved ones, they got to come out and hear this story of grace. What kind of story have I fallen into here? So they bring others with them. The city's buzzing. The message is now being talked about. The rabbi now is going to be given another opportunity once again to communicate truth. Because the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered, but notice they didn't gather to hear the Apostle Paul. That's not what it says. They gathered to hear the word of the Lord, which is what our Sundays are all about, you see. And you're going to want to track repeatedly the word of the Lord principle throughout these verses, you see. And so they have come, and they are hungry for the word of the Lord. They don't want superficial stuff. They get it all week. They now want substance, not superficiality. And so they have gathered together. They've gathered together. They're hearing the word of the Lord at this point. But whenever the gospel is being presented, simultaneously the gospel is going to be opposed. Opportunity and obstacles go together. But... When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, what we've got to bear in mind when you and I study the idea of jealousy in the Bible is that there are references to God, where God is jealous for his glory. There is a sinless jealousy and there's a sinful jealousy. What both sinless jealousy and sinful jealousy share in common is the whole issue of jealousy. One is right, one is wrong. God is jealous for his glory. The problem is for sinful humanity, people are jealous for their glory. It's ultimately a glory issue. You see, who gets the glory? And so now, what the Apostle Paul is going to have to do is to raise the bar. At this point then, and this is terrible, but this is religious jealousy. They're religious and they're jealous. And what we've got to do is to understand that God is jealous for his glory. And we cannot be jealous for our glory, whatever it is and wherever it is found, whether it be in our families in our work, in our income, in our education, in our abilities, our personalities. So when you're pondering the matter of jealousy, I want you to ponder the issue of glory. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. 
as a result, they tried to contradict him. I remember when Benjamin, Pamela, I, we were in Florence, Italy, and there was a, a tour guide, and she was walking us, the family, some of the family members, through a portion of a particular museum where um, the David is to be found. Stories told. With the counselors of Florence, they had asked da Vinci, then Italy's most celebrated artist, to submit sketches for decorations for that particular hall of Florence. But one of the counselors had heard of a young, little-known artist who's done great work. His name was Michelangelo. So they asked him to submit some sketches as well. Well, as you and I know, it had to be. Sketches of Leonardo were superb. He's genius. But you see, when the counselors saw the sketches of Michelangelo, they decided that those were the ones they wanted. When the news reached Leonardo da Vinci, he heard that one of the counselors had said, well, da Vinci's getting old. Well, his biographer tells us he was never able to get over the eclipse of his fame by Michelangelo. And the remaining years of his life were clouded with gloom and sorrow. People, when jealousy grips the soul, gloom and sorrow are awaiting. Understand that there is a relationship between jealousy and glory. And when jealousy grips this heart, begin to ask yourself, okay, what's the glory issue involved here? Is God getting the glory or am I trying to see his glory for myself? So now the Apostle Paul is laying out the parameters for understanding what the ultimate issues of life are. And as they're reviling him, you're up to verse 46. <coughs> Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. There needs to be a certain courage when a culture, whether it be distinguishing, or when a culture is simply being disrupted, there needs to be a sense of boldness where the one who knows what is timeless is able to communicate that which is timely. Changeless truths for changing times. Paul, Barnabas, get up. They speak boldly. Now, look at this. It says, it was necessary... Here's the word of God again. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. After all, that was his strategy. He would go into the synagogues initially, but bear in mind there were not church facilities in those days, in that age. The synagogue was a natural place. It was a place much like a, the town hall where everything was integrated. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to the Jew first, also to the Gentile principle. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, in other words, they were making a statement visibly of where they were at spiritually, he uses a visual word, behold. Returning to the Gentiles. Now, 
the novice might say, well, the Older Testament was for the Jew and the Newer Testament was for the Gentiles. But the person who begins to study the scriptures understands the Old Testament, the usage found in the New, the way in which Jesus used the Older Testament, the way Paul used the Older Testament. I remember in my radio years in Pittsburgh, and there was a woman who called and she asked him, is your church a New Testament church? Oh, did I have fun with that. Because I said, my dear, you've got to understand the New Testament church only had the Old Testament. Let's take a walk. In Genesis chapter 3 of verse 15. A Messiah is promised. You make your way in Genesis up to chapter 10, and what God has done in chapter 10 of Genesis is that there is a list of the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles. This was a universalistic presentation. Now you wake, make your way up to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where Abram and his seed are being told that they will be a blessing to the Goyim, to the nations. And what we find is that the gospel is being presented to the Gentiles in the days of Genesis. Okay, make your way up to Exodus. And there's that brilliant discussion that this man who understood organizational thinking, strategic planning, Jethro, how he was tutoring Moses and how to be able to guide and direct a large number of people put together plans and ideas where there's structures in place. Jethro was a Gentile. Ah, you make your way up to Numbers, and there's Balaam, and Balaam as a Gentile is prophesying concerning this one, the star that we know as the star of David, we know as Jesus still to come. No, make your way further. Hmm. Then there in Joshua is Rahab, a Gentile, exposed to the promise and through the witness of the Jews. And then you make your way further too, onwards until you get to people like, well, let's just fast forward it to Jonah. And Jonah is being told that you're to go and minister to the Ninevites. And the Ninevites were the Goyim. They were the Gentiles. And furthermore, they were stark opponents to the Israelites Yet they were likewise to be presented with this whole matter that salvation comes through the Messiah who is to come. Hmm. Well, you see, God had one singular plan, not one plan A and then another plan B when it came to the whole matter of global outrage. Paul knew it. And so he goes to this 8th century B.C. prophet by the name of Isaiah, you see. In Isaiah chapter 49 of verse 6, using the Septuagint in terms of his statements. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, in the book of Luke, Simeon took the baby Jesus in his arms of chapter 2 of verse 32 and declared that the baby was a light 
for revelation to the Gentiles. And what we find when you and I look at Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, this whole matter of Jesus being the light of the world and believers being the light of the world, there's an oscillation effect here. There is the swinging of the pendulum between the Israelites and the ultimate Israelite, Jesus Christ. But it is one singular plan, and it was always meant to be that way. No contingent plan. God and God alone is sovereign. That's why Paul would be able to talk about this as his foundational strategy. Why in Acts chapter 9 of verse 15, uh, Ananias had been told, this is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And Paul would later attest to that in Acts 26 of verse 18. And tie it together. And he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Simultaneously talking about Jesus Christ as well as Christ's followers. Light in a world of darkness. You like history? In the storming of the Bastille during the French Revolution, there was this prison fortress that was held by French prisoners. And when revolutionaries took the prison, they began freeing the prisoners. Listen. One man who had been held in the Bastille for a lot of years, he begged to be taken back to his cell. It had been so long since he had seen the light that he could not stand it anymore. He wanted to return to the darkness. And when I read that account, I thought of what happens next. Because the Apostle Paul now has exposed both secularists and religionists to the ultimate light. He is quoted from the Older Testament as pertains to the purpose, the mission of it all. Sometime when you have the chance, you might want to get a hold of my former professor, Dr. Walter Kaiser's book, The Mission in the Old Testament. He writes on this. Well, now, you're up then to the third aspect of how to understand all this when God disrupts the culture and how he simultaneously distinguishes the gospel. I want you to understand how this relates to us today. The initial response produces in 42 and 43 the scriptural promise, and we spotted that of Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. The scriptural promise in 44 through 47. But now thirdly, get this. Note with me the eventual conflicts it creates. The gospel is going to create conflicts within the household. The gospel is going to create conflicts within the culture. The gospel is going to create conflicts within a nation. Accept it. It's a reality. And so in verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying what? The word of the Lord. They're getting steeped in the word of the Lord, you see. Now, 
as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The word appointed carries with the idea of being enrolled in a book. This is, this is simply put, election. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Lord of the Rings. I am not made for perilous quests, cried Frodo. I wish I had never seen the ring. Why did it have to come to me? Why was I chosen? Gandalf. Such questions cannot be answered. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess. Not for power or wisdom, at any rate. But Frodo, you've been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. You've made your way a hundred miles into what's now modern-day Turkey. You have followed those Roman roads to this point. You're high altitude at this moment, you see. You're exploring that synagogue, and now you're thinking about that region, Pisidia. It's still a region in Turkey today known as Pisidia. And there was this coming and going, and people were sharing this word that the Apostle Paul had communicated. And man, it's the talk of the region, you see. It's the talk of the region. It's spreading throughout the whole region. Polar opposites. If you're going to cling to the gospel simultaneously, expect it. There's going to be opposition. Happens in the home. Happens at school. Happens at work. Happens in the region. Happens in the nation. Happens globally. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. Those were religious women of that day. And the leading men of the city, those were the political figures of that day. And now do you see how religion and politics converge in a form of opposition at this moment? Man. Nothing new. Stirred up persecution. Join forces. Just the same as when we find the Jewish opposition in Jerusalem combining with the Roman leadership like Pilate opposition. And so what we see now is that there's this stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But I can just see now, Paul, he's gutsy, he is bold, he's courageous, takes off his sandals, and shakes off the dust. And what he's now doing symbolically is reversing this and saying, you religionists that don't know Messiah, Jesus, you're the ones that shake off the dust when you leave Gentile lands to head into Israel. I'm now shaking off the dust because you are functioning like a pagan, and uh, even though you're religious, and I'm going to make my way toward the Gentiles. And he's completely reversed this thing. Astounding. Can't miss it here. Where did they go? They made their way to Iconium. Check out this uh, road on the road way to Iconium. It's there. 
when we get to Iconium, next in the book of Acts. This is the road he would have taken. And I want you to see the sovereignty of God at this point because God is sovereign over politics, even the Roman Empire. And so as they laid out the brilliant road system so that chariots could move back and forth and they could extend their, their influence from one setting to the next, the gospel as well was able to go out because they used the same roads Paul did, Barnabas did, to bring the gospel forth to new regions. You see how all this works. That's your sovereign God, operative. And when he disrupts the culture, simultaneously he distinguishes the gospel. The result, 52. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of eventual conflicts. When I was trying to discern God's will between medicine and the pastorate, I wonder if I'm still trying to figure that one out. I used to go down the basement at Trinity's library and check out some of the writings of what I'll call the old Presbyterian writers from Princeton, the old Princeton. There's one in particular, Archibald Alexander. He's one of the founders. Spoke about how for a long time he did not know the grace of God. Didn't. But at the age of 17 in the city of Lexington, Virginia, he was concerned. So he went out went out of the city, found a big rock, sat down on the rock with his Bible, and he was reading the Bible, and here he said, and I quote, I was concerned about spiritual things. The most concerned I was, the less response I seemed to get. And so finally he said, in a despair, I just, I just turned to the Lord, and I said, oh God, and I just let out a groan. David Calhoun, in his two-volume work on Princeton, tells us Alexander didn't say exactly what he said, but in essence, he said, God just, he just let out a cry of despair to the Lord God, and quote, in a moment, I had such a view of the crucified yet risen Savior as without parallel in all of my experience. And the whole plan of the gospel appeared as plain as day. And I was persuaded that God was willing to accept me just as I am. And convinced that I had never before understood the freeness of salvation, but had always been striving to bring some price in my hand to prepare myself for Jesus. But now I discovered that I could receive him in all of his offices. And at that very moment, which I was sure at that time I did, I felt truly joy. A joy that was unspeakable. A joy that was full 
of glory. And the chapter ends. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. When God disrupts a culture, God distinguishes the gospel. Let's stand together. Father, now speak. And just as the ending of the synagogue exposition, and there was a begging, there was an urgency, there was a longing for more. Our prayer is that whether it be today's first service, today's second service, the live stream, there's such a longing for more that within our hearts we're saying, I just can't get enough of Jesus. I can't get enough of scripture. I've had my fill of the news of the day. What I'm longing for is a refilling of the good news for all days. So Father, speak now to each and every heart and use your word to make a difference in this culture for your glory. In Jesus' name.